Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Greetings, Carlos. Hey, Alberto. How are you? I'm doing good, and I'm hoping you're having a blessed Lenten season. Yes, I am. Lent is always blessed. Some more so than others, but this one's very, very good so far. Well, good. Lent is always a special time, and I don't think you can have a bigger grand finale than Easter. Even better than Christmas, I think. Oh, yes. Easter is my favorite of all holidays or holy days. Absolutely. Agreed. So on the last episode, you said today we were going to talk about the father of mysticism, St. Gregory of Nyssa. Yes, St. Gregory is one of the great fathers of the early church. Of course, he was Greek, and he spoke and wrote in Greek. And for quite some time after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, his texts became inaccessible primarily because people in the Western Empire that had just fallen began to lose the ability to read Greek. There were fewer and fewer people who could read Greek, and very few of his texts have been translated to Latin. So throughout the early Middle Ages, he had more of an impact on the Eastern Christian Church, Orthodox, than in the West. But as we shall see, we'll cover this today, his texts had a profound influence on the West because they influenced others who were then translated into Latin. So he's as important to the West as he is to the East, even though for some centuries there were very, very few texts of him available in Latin. So tell us about the life of St. Gregory. St. Gregory is one of these Christian thinkers born after persecution has ended. So even though his own parents had had experiences with persecution and martyrdoms, he did not. He is a member of this brand new persecution-free church established by Emperor Constantine. He's born in 335 AD. Persecution ceased in 313. And his Christian education was supervised by his brother, older brother, Basil, whom he called father and teacher. And by his sister, Macrina, he came from this, this amazing family where many of his family members are, are saints and were very influential in the church. And as a matter of fact, he, his brother Basil, Basil the Great, and another Gregory, who was their friend, Gregory Nazianzus, or Gre Gregory Nazianzen, his name is spelled both ways, are known as the Cappadocian Fathers. Why? Because they came from the region of what is now Turkey, was then known as Asia Minor, of Cappadocia. And they were, all three of them, the greatest champions in the Eastern Church of defending, first, the full divinity of Christ, and then the full divinity of all three members of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and ended up being involved in various councils and synods that, that defined the faith, uh, not just for the Eastern Christian Church, but also to the Western Christian Church, which would then you know evolve into what we now call the Catholic Church. He is immensely, immensely important. As important, perhaps, as Augustine is in the West, St. Augustine, and they, they both received similar kinds of education, except, you know, Augustine had trouble reading Greek, and he didn't like studying Greek. So they come from these two parts of the early Christian world that by the end of Augustine's life, when he dies in 430, the Vandals are right outside the walls of Hippo. So Gregory of Nyssa had a good classical education and particularly excelled at philosophy and rhetoric. And he knew many of the pre-Christian philosophers of Greek culture, especially Plato. He was very much a Platonist, a Christian Platonist. He was eventually elected bishop of Nyssa. So he also served as a, as a churchman. And because of the roller coaster ups and downs of the Arian heresy, which we have spoken about before, for a while he was exiled because uh, after Constantine, some emperors actually sided with the Arians rather than with the Orthodox and up and down. Athanasius of Alexandria, also someone else who kept being exiled because of the ups and downs. So he had a somewhat tumultuous life, but he took part in various synods, settled disputes, and also had to deal with Emperor Theodosius, who was one of the first Roman emperors to really get very involved in church affairs. And there, there was always a tug of war going on between Christian bishops and Theodosius. And not just bishops in, in the East, bishops in the West. Um, St. Ambrose had stood up to Theodosius also. So, very tumultuous age, despite the fact that persecutions had ceased. He was also a great homilist who gave many sermons that, that have survived. And he would later, much later, be called the father of Christian mysticism by several writers. And that's, that's quite a big claim for any saint. So Augustine was the Prince of Mystics. That's the title given to him by Dom Cuthbert Butler. There's a theologian, Jean Danielou, French, who would eventually become a cardinal, who wrote a, a book on Gregory of Nyssa, in which he called him no less than the founder of mystical theology. And in the early 2000s, Pope Benedict XVI gave, a, he, he gave a talks on early Christian fathers, and he, he gave two talks on Gregory of Nyssa, in which he called him a father of mysticism, not the father of mysticism. So we can see these 20th century individuals talking or writing about Gregory have great appreciation for him. You know, the question remains, why would they say that he was so important? I was about to ask you that. So what was <laughs> it about, So what was it about St. Gregory that they consider him the father of mysticism or a father of mysticism? Yeah, well, you know, 
unlike many other individuals who get called mystics, he doesn't have texts about ecstasies and so on, as, as do later mystics that we have talked about. But he wrote a lot. And it's his take on several aspects of mystical experience that have earned him this recognition as father of mysticism. One of these elements in his thinking and writing is his take on prayer, which he thought should be constant. And keep in mind, this is the fourth century. We're still talking very, very early. The Christian mystical tradition is gaining shape. And monastic theology, of course, had emphasized prayer. But Gregory also emphasizes the necessity of constant prayer. He also gives a central place to Christ in mysticism and also emphasizes an aspect, an aspect of human nature, its likeness to the divine, and relating that likeness to the divine to Christ being God incarnate, promoting and emphasizing that the goal of human existence is to be divinized. The Greek word is theosis, and I think we've covered that before, divinization. So you see in him an elevation of human nature, and actually the essential claim any mystic can make, the most essential is, well, yeah, of course, human beings are capable of communing with God and being elevated beyond their normal human existence. Yes, he emphasized that. And then, in addition to all this, he emphasized in his theology that God was infinitely transcendent. What does that mean, infinitely transcendent? It's a very basic idea that the human mind cannot fully comprehend God, and that human experience of God as infinite is an eternal process for the human mind. We'll get back to that, right? But this idea that the end point of human existence, the purpose of human existence, same thing that uh, St. Augustine said, you know, we're restless. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And that's the goal of human existence. Gregory put a spin on it that was extremely positive and actually contributes not just to mystical theology, but also to eschatology, that branch of theology that focuses on the afterlife, on what happens after death. And we'll return to that because this is a very important aspect of Gregory's mysticism. That whole idea of divinization that we are gods, it's it's kind of very difficult for me and for humans to grasp, you know, being we are mortal and, and we kind of look at God in another dimension in a, in a whole other way. But in the Gospel of John, in chapter 10, and I'm reading it here, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Yes, and that's precisely the nexus or connection that Gregory of Nyssa emphasizes, is that God became a man, and that by becoming a man, 
God not just repaired human nature back to what it was in the Garden of Eden before the fall, but actually transformed human nature in a very special way, which is what St. Athanasius also emphasized and is saying, which is translated in various ways, God became a man so that humans could become divine. It was a total transformation of human nature. And that is a very, very difficult concept to grasp or to fully understand, because what, what does that mean? Especially because, you know, we human beings, while we're alive here on earth, we keep tripping, making mistakes, and not acting very divinely. Plus, we, we don't have divine, most of us. There have been some rare individuals who we've talked about before who display, you know, physical phenomena that point towards this divinization. But most Christians do not. So it's kind of hard to take that in, right? But this tradition of theosis is stronger in the Eastern Christian tradition than in the Western Christian tradition. So after the two main branches of the church went their separate ways in 1054, Orthodox and the Catholic, theosis theology stronger among the Orthodox than among Catholics. Although Catholics accept it, and I'm not saying, no, this doesn't happen. It's just, it's much stronger. There's more emphasis on it in the Orthodox tradition. Over the last few years, I've been studying a lot, reading a lot, and listening a lot to Orthodox Christian writers and priests, and it fascinates me. One of the things I really like about, or that I really enjoy from the Orthodox is their very, very strong connection to the early church fathers. Oh, yes. And you really get an insight that I don't normally see in, you know, as a practicing Catholic in in the Catholic Mm -hmm. Church. Yeah. Well, you know, the fathers of the church, interestingly enough, this is a little bit of a digression. I was having a conversation yesterday with a colleague, and this has been going on for the last couple of decades, right? That there are evangelical Protestants who have been turning to the fathers, much more so than their forebears or ancestors had in the past. And they're finding just how useful for the interpretation of Scripture and tradition, how useful these texts of the fathers can be. And we actually had a student here who wrote wrote a dissertation a decade ago or longer, maybe 12 years ago, on some of these evangelical Protestants, many of whom live out in the Western U.S. states. And at that time, 10 or 12 years ago, one of the features of these communities of these specific evangelical Protestants, that they were naming their children after church fathers. (laughs) So church fathers can come around again. Gregory is up there at the top when you list the significant church fathers and crosses, let's call it, uh, crosses church boundaries, denominational boundaries. So you mentioned earlier that Gregory did a lot of writing. What were some of the texts that he left behind. Yeah, Gregory wrote a lot. And among these 
the more important texts that are cited most often is one with the title, The Making of Man. The Latin translation, De Officio Hominis. And then other texts that had to do with asceticism and mystical commentaries and treatises, scripture commentaries, especially his commentary on the Song of Songs, that favorite book of the Hebrew Bible for Christian mystics, 15 homilies or sermons on the Song of Songs, very important, and also eight sermons or homilies on the Beatitudes of Jesus, you know, basically the Sermon on the Mount, and perhaps the most important text for his mysticism is his book, The Life of Moses which we'll be talking about in a few minutes. The Life of Moses is a key text that was not translated into Latin until later in the Middle Ages, but it influenced Dionysius the Areopagite, whom we have discussed before. And Dionysius was translated into Latin in the 9th century. So actually what, what the West gets from Gregory of Nyssa comes largely from Dionysius, the Areopagite, who was maybe 6th, 7th century, we don't know for sure. And, of course, Dionysius is best known for his very brief text, The Mystical Theology, which is all about what in Latin gets called the via negativa, the way of negation, and using Greek terminology, apophatic theology. To recap, in case our listeners have not heard this before, some of our earlier episodes, what is apophatic theology? Apophatic theology is a, a mystical approach to theology in which you begin from the very fact that God is so unlike humans, so much greater, so much transcendent from, from anything that we experience, that language fails in describing him. He is beyond full description or full comprehension. And Gregory of Nyssa is key for the development of apophatic theology, apophatic mysticism. This is, I find, very, very interesting because we've talked about this before, that the Egyptian city of Alexandria had many philosophical schools. And it was from this Greek-speaking Egyptian city and these schools in Alexandria, that a lot of early Christian terminology was developed, as well as approaches to studying the Bible, and as well as the theology itself that came out of the interpretation of the Bible. So, although he did not study in Alexandria, Gregory studied the kind of Christian theology or philosophical theology that had been developed in Alexandria. But he differed on one issue from one of the most significant of those Alexandrian Christian thinkers, about whom we've spoken before, Origen, third century Christian. And how did he differ from him, and on what issue? Well, it was on the issue of the person of God and the power of God, because Origen argued that God, or at least God's power, was limited. And the reason for this is that particular Platonic way of thinking that he had 
accepted, equated limitlessness with imperfection. So this is how subtle this theology can be. In contrast, Gregory of Nyssa broke with origin on this issue and insisted that God was boundless, unlimited, and therefore absolutely incomprehensible. So you see there the interplay between two early Christian thinkers going in different directions. Going back to origin, and I want to make sure I understand this correctly. When he said God could not be limitless because of imperfection, is that mm-hmm. to say that if he was limitless, then he wouldn't be limited to be imperfect? That's part of it. Yes, very much so. And that's a very, very good way to put it. So if there's nothing God can't do, it would also mean that he could be imperfect. And also, if you think of it visually, there's another way of looking at it, right? Imagine a circle without limits. It's not a circle at all. It's the boundary of the circle, right, that makes the circle a perfect figure. That's the kind of thinking uh, that's going on among Platonists in Alexandria that Origen accepts. So it's what you emphasize. And Gregory of Nyssa chose to emphasize the fact that God's power has to be boundless. It has to be infinite. And that his person has to be not just eternal, but also infinite. What's the difference between eternity and infinity? There's a place where eternity and infinity kind of are the same thing, but usually eternity is applicable to time and infinity to space. Gregory said, God cannot have any boundaries, but the human mind does. So, Insisting that God was boundless, unlimited, and therefore absolutely incomprehensible, he says this in the life of Moses, and I'm quoting, He, Moses, learns from what was said in Exodus 33.20, that the divine is by its very nature infinite and closed by no boundary. It is not in the nature of what is unenclosed to be grasped. Every desire for the good which is attracted to that ascent, constantly expands as one progresses in pressing on to the good, never to reach satiety of desiring is truly to see God. Now, let's pause here for a second, because if there's anything that that Gregory of Nyssa contributes that is not just unique, but immensely significant, it is this, right? It's the idea that in the human-divine relationship, the human keeps growing in its understanding of the divine and will keep growing forever. So in this life, there is no perfection. That's another thing about this teaching of Gregory of Nyssa, right? Perfection is beyond us, and that includes you know, our moral perfection as human beings? No, we will never be perfect. Only God can be perfect. But the same goes for knowledge of God and what human being can know of God is that since God is infinite and eternal and humans are promised eternal life, our learning will be infinite. 
we will always be discovering new things about God and about his creation. So to stop for a second and give an example of how this thinking about human destiny and human afterlife and the promise of eternal life for humans can have a tremendous impact on thinking about the essence of of human existence. My book, Very Brief History of Eternity, I got some hate mail from very aggressive atheists. I may have spoken about this before, in which uh, they said in one way or another, you know, the whole concept of eternity or eternal life for humans is stupid. Because, of course, if we were to live forever, truly, if we were eternal, we would just get eternally bored. (laughs) I had to laugh when I got that one, because I was thinking as I was reading that argument of Gregory of Nyssa and his notion of eternal growing, eternal, limitless learning. And there's actually a formal term in Greek for this idea and Gregory, and it is epictasis, E-P-E-K-T-A-S-I-S, epictasis. And I might be pronouncing it wrong because I don't know where the accents go on this word, but that's an amazing insight, not just into the divine, but into human potential. This is why I think that this epictasis and Gregory of Nyssa is so significant because it doesn't only have an impact on mystical theology and what mystics might think or expect, but it also has a lot to do with eschatology, you know, with what comes after life on earth. And it's so optimistic, right? It is just one of the most optimistic theologies that I have ever encountered you know, about what's the poss- what's what's possible for human nature and what awaits us, not as our end point, because Gregory's main point is there is no end point. This growing is infinite and eternal. So this is the reason I thought, you know, at this point, this episode in our podcast, we should talk about Gregory of Nyssa. Because uh, moving forward to cover other mystics and what they have to say, I think it's helpful to keep this in the background, right? That anytime that from now on, if our listeners have, have heard this episode, this conversation, when we're discussing or talking about the highest point of mystical experience, you know, union with God, it's not to be viewed as an ending but rather an infinite beginning. Sure, before death here on earth, all these mystics that we're going to be talking about and have talked about, you have your ecstatic moments, but they're only moments. And you come back down and here you're you're in your body, your senses. But after death, that's what's promised, is participation in God's infinity and eternity. You mentioned earlier that... Gregory was basically a Platonist. Yeah. And I know in books I've read that there are some people in Christianity who totally reject Platonism. Was that as strong in that era as as I it seems to be now? No, it wasn't. No, not in Gregory's day. No. Uh, many of the biggest minds, let's call them that, 
biggest minds in early Christian thinking, not only Platonism, but Stoicism also, two branches of the Greek philosophical family that had an enormous influence in the way in which Christians thought. If the Gospel of John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Greek word for, the, for, for word used by John's Gospel is logos, that comes straight out of Greek philosophy. So it's embedded in the Gospels. And yeah, there were Greek philosophical schools that didn't mesh very nicely with Christianity. And of course, they were not only uh, sort of left alone, but rejected outright. Skepticism, many aspects of Epicureanism. But Platonism, and especially later Platonism, the, the one that is called Neoplatonism or New Platonism, which was very, very strong in Alexandria. Oh, that, that had a tremendous influence and instead of being rejected, was embraced. And maybe I should explain what difference this makes, how Gregory's Platonism shapes his thought in a very Christian way. And here's, let's call it the deal. Here's the deal <laughs> with Platonists, right? The basic assumption about reality for Platonists, is that this world we inhabit is an inferior reality. Where is the superior reality? Well, for Platonists, it's in the realm of ideas. The intelligible realm is the English way of referring to it. Ideas. Everything in this world is a reflection of the real thing in the realm of ideas. So, in philosophical terms, this is metaphysics. Metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that analyzes what is beyond the physical. Meta, beyond physics. So how do we know? How do we, how do we know anything? How do we learn the truth? How do we approach the world to see what is actually true and real? That branch of philosophy is epistemology. How you know what is true. The two are inseparable, metaphysics and epistemology. What I'm leading to is the, the following example. For a Platonist, when you see a chair, how do you know that's a chair? There it is. Hey, can you identify it? Oh, sure, it's a chair. Why is it a chair? Because it shares in the idea of chair. The chairness. There is such a thing as chairness, right? <laughs> What Christians do with this is that this world, God's creation, of course it's good. The Bible says it's good. Book of Genesis says God saw it was good. It's good, but it's not the real thing. The real thing is the idea in the mind of God. Everything in creation is an idea in the mind of God. And it's a higher form of existence for everything in the mind of God. So I hope our listeners can kind of begin to see how important it is for Gregory of Nyssa to be a, a Platonist, because then this means that everything on earth can lead to the divine. And even more important for a Christian, Christian rituals, 
Christian symbols are a manifestation of divine realities. They're special. Christian rituals and Christian symbols. I mean, let's be as prosaic as possible. Can a rock lead you to God? Well, yeah, sure. You know, you see a beautiful rock. God made it. And it's a reflection of, you know, God's creative power. There are some rocks that are just, you know, stunningly beautiful. And we can all admit this, you know, and we call them gems. And they're very expensive (laughs) precisely because they're so beautiful. But a liturgy, right? A celebration of the Eucharist, a procession, any of the sacraments of the Christian church, they are a point of connection direct with the divine that unlike a rock, which is just a rock and it you know points you to God as creator, these rituals and symbols are re- revealing to you or making real deep, deep truths about God's plan for salvation and what he can offer you. So how do you climb your way up to God, to that realm? Through the church, which is a very physical and very material thing. So, you know, what's baptism? Hey, what's the deal with that water you sprinkle on somebody's head? How does that make them any different? Oh, well, if you're a Platonist, it's it's pretty clear. Yeah, that water is part of our inferior realm, but it leads you to the real thing. And the technical philosophical term for this connection that exists between the earthly and the heavenly is anagogical, right? It's an anagogical relationship between liturgies, rituals, sacraments, symbols. And Gregory folds all of this into his mysticism. And everything employed in a liturgy, that is, in a Christian ritual, and everything is supposed to point you upwards to the higher reality of the divine. So, why do Christians, why have, you know, in the history of the Christian religion, why have Christians built such beautiful churches? Precisely for this reason, because their beauty can lead you to higher reality. I know you had said that St. Gregory didn't write any texts on ecstasies or things of that nature, but in terms of mysticism, prayer was a very important aspect of it for him. Oh, yes. And it's one of the building blocks of his thought is how essential prayer is because you have to put some effort into meeting God. And of course, it's prayer. It's the communication. So the work of assimilation to the divine nature requires constant and persevering prayer to God. And one of his sermons is on the, the prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, right? The one prayer Jesus taught his disciples and everyone who was listening to him, which Christians of all denominations pray. He's got a sermon on that prayer. And I'm going to quote what he has to say in part of the sermon. It's somewhat lengthy, but I think more than any other quote that we might have today, this is the one that I think gets to the the heart of Gregory's mysticism. And here's what he has to say. Anyone who does not unite himself to God through prayer is separated from God. Therefore, we must learn, first of all, that we ought always to pray and not grow weary. And that's a quote from Luke 
18.1. For the effect of prayer is to join us to God, and anyone who is with God is far from the adversary, meaning the devil. Through prayer, we strengthen and safeguard our charity, bridle our anger, and subdue and control our pride. Prayer leads us to forget our injuries, vanquishes envy, disarms injustice, and makes amends for sin. Through prayer, we obtain physical well-being, a happy home, and a strong, well-ordered society. It is prayer that will make our nation powerful. Give us victory in war and security and peace. It reconciles enemies and preserves allies. Prayer is the safeguarding of virginity and the guarantee of fidelity in marriage, the shield of the traveler, the protection of the sleeper, and the encouragement of those who keep vigil. Prayer is intimacy with God and contemplation of the unseen. It answers our yearnings and makes us the equal of angels. Through prayer, the good is fostered, evil destroyed, and sinners converted. So, that's a lot (laughs) that prayer can do. But first point in this quote, anyone who does not unite himself to God through prayer is separated from God. Prayer is the gateway. And it's the communication. And I I keep thinking of this book title from the late 60s, uh, Marshall McLuhan, The Medium is the Message, which was about modern media. But basically here, what Gregory is saying is also, you know, the medium is the message. And what's the message? The message is you've got a relationship you can establish with the divine through this medium. And much, much also applies to, you know, rituals and symbols that involve prayer. Prayer never hurts. Oh, no. But, you know, here's another quote that kind of expands on prayer, because rituals within Christian liturgies are prayers. So much so that, you know, St. Augustine uh, is, famous saying from St. Augustine is, he who sings prays twice. (laughs) Right? You can ramp up prayer by singing your prayer. But here's a beautiful passage from Gregory, something he saw when he returned to his church at Nyssa after being exiled. And for those of us that are exiles, the depth of feeling and emotion that returning somewhere from where you've been banished is, is can be unimaginable. But he saw a procession when he came back inside the church. And he said, when we had come within the portico, we saw a stream of fire coursing into the church. For the choir of virgins was processing in line into the entrance of the church, carrying tapers of wax in their hands, kindling the whole to a splendor with their blaze. And when I had entered and had both rejoiced and wept with the people, For I experienced both of these from witnessing both passions in the crowd. As soon as I had finished the prayers, I wrote out this letter to your holiness as quickly as possible. So this procession of young women carrying candles into the church to him was a transformative 
moment, precisely because of this anagogical relationship between what's here on earth and what it points to in heaven. And this is very Platonist or Platonic, this whole idea, anagogical relationship between the the seen and the unseen. One of St. Gregory's best-known works is The Life of Moses. Yeah. Why is that so important? Well, The Life of Moses, again, using Moses as metaphor or an anagogical link to the mystical life every Christian can have. Uh, He takes the life of Moses and draws lessons from it, seeing Moses as an entryway to human nature, universal, you know, a specific human, very important specific human, right, in salvation history. But what is it in Moses that is also possible for everyone? Well, events in Moses' life point to the way in which humans can progress in their mystical, spiritual life and make progress. So, specifically, here are some quotes, passages from his life of Moses. And these passages refer to three key moments in the life of Moses that to Gregory represent steps on the mystical quest, right? And this first quote is about the mountain of divine knowledge, which is Moses's first step, right? Where does he encounter God first? What's his first encounter with God? It's the burning bush, fire, light, right? Fire is associated with light and this burning bush that will not be consumed. And this is all in a mountain landscape. So here's Gregory on the mountain of divine knowledge. The contemplation of God is not affected by sight and hearing, nor is it comprehended by any of the customary perceptions of the mind. For no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor does it belong to those things which usually enter into the heart of man. He who would approach the knowledge of things sublime must first purify his manner of life from all sensual and irrational emotion. He must wash from his understanding every opinion derived from some preconception and withdraw himself from his customary intercourse with his own companion, that is, with his sense perceptions, which are, as it were, wedded to our nature as its companion. When he is so purified, then he assaults the mountain. The knowledge of God is a mountain steep indeed and difficult to climb. The majority of people scarcely reach its base. Then he goes on, I'm not going to read that quote, but how Moses is forced to take off his shoes, his sandals, before God. And this has a lot to do with, you know, the shedding of of, of these things that we have in our material, sensual universe that we must get rid of on the way to the divine. But there's also the the theme of illumination, the fire, the light. Another quote, second step, second thing that happens to Moses when God comes to him in a cloud. And boy, just think of this, because, you know, I thought of it today uh, preparing for our podcast. We've talked about the cloud of unknowing that famous 14th century 
English text. And here it is in Gregory of Nyssa, the cloud. And now I'm quoting from Gregory. What does it mean that Moses entered the darkness and then saw God in it? What is now recounted seems somehow to be contradictory to the first theophany, that is, the theophany of the burning bush. For then the divine was beheld in light, but now he is seen in darkness. When, therefore, Moses grew in knowledge, he declared that he had seen God in the darkness, that is, that he had then come to know that what is divine is beyond all knowledge and comprehension. For the text says, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. What God? He who made darkness his hiding place, who was also initiated into the mysteries in the same inner sanctuary. He's speaking about David. So let me read it, full thing. What God? He who made darkness his hiding place, as David says in the Psalms who was also initiated into the mysteries in the same inner sanctuary. And uh, then he goes on and on with more of this apophatic mystical theology. says, The divine word at the beginning forbids that the divine be likened to any of the things known by men, since every concept which comes from some comprehensible image by an approximate understanding and by guessing at the divine nature constitutes an idol of God and does not proclaim God. So, you know, I'm immediately thinking of Dionysius the Areopagite, Meister Eckhart, and Meister Eckhart's very brief prayer. I pray God rid me of God, meaning I pray that God rids me of my preconceptions about God. That's step two. What is the um, step three? Well, that's union, the heavenly tabernacle. And of course, uh, Moses ends up Uh, getting the tablets of the law and building a a tabernacle to keep the tablets of the law in it. And uh, I'll just quote, there's a brief quote about the heavenly tabernacle. What then is that tabernacle not made with hands, which was shown to Moses on the mountain and to which he was commanded to look to as an archetype so that he might reproduce in a handmade structure that marvel not made with hands. There's the anagogical thing again. The tabernacle, it ends up being made by human hands, an image of the tabernacle not made by human hands. That's absolutely amazing, the way Moses can give us insight into the steps to reaching God. And while St. Gregory didn't leave us with stories of ecstasies, of levitations, or bilocation, or any of, of those types of phenomena, we do see how our relationship with God and our communication with God and our connection to God is the key to mysticism. And he truly does earn his title of being a father of mysticism. Yeah, He provides very, very interesting insight into all of it. So, as we end today's show, who do you have for us on the next episode? I think we keep shuttling back and forth through time as if we had a time machine. We'll go forward to the 15th century. And a very important book, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. It's more of a text than a mystic, but it's essential to 
early modern mysticism, this book, which has had a lot of impact on so many Christians. I was going to say Catholics, but no, it's not just Catholics. This book has had an enormous impact on Christians for centuries. And once again, the theme brings us the theme of imitating Christ. It's kind of an echo of every Christian imitating Moses and going through these steps that Moses went through. So we'll have plenty to explore with that. And that book also has a very direct connection to my own life, which we can talk about next time. I was going to say, anybody who's ever read your memoirs knows how important that book is to you. And I'm really looking forward to getting your take on it. Thank you, Carlos, for joining us. And we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.